and uh, we're starting in chapter 2, which is on page 681 in the Church Bibles, and then we're going to go over to chapter 8, halfway through. Listen, my beloved. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, grazing through the windows. Peering through the lattice, my beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the seasons of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. This is chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to, get, were to give all the wealth of one's house for love it would be utterly scorned. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks very much, uh, Jeff and Francis, for reading that to us this morning. As we come to God's word, let's uh, let's pray, shall we? Father God, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that as we read your word, we can come to know you, we can know how to relate to you, We do acknowledge some parts of your word are more difficult to understand than others. And so we do pray for particular help this morning. Help us to see how these words are helpful for our relationships with one another, but also for our relationship with you. Help us to see the wonder of your love for us, your faithfulness towards us, which never, never ends and nothing can stop. Lord, help us be full of love for you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think um, looking around, some of you may be old enough to remember the, uh, the swinging 60s, as they were called, um, a decade marked by different things. Here are some of those um, which you may remember, uh, some of the music, the Beatles and, and other groups, some of the fashions, um, some of you may remember wearing bell-bottoms or, or miniskirts. Um, there was the growth in, in drug use in the campaign for, for nuclear disarmament. There was the moon landing and various other political developments. But one of the most significant changes, though, was the start of the, the sexual revolution, which coincided with the arrival of the contraceptive pill. And it was um, basically a rejection of the traditional institution of marriage, 
as people were attracted by the prospect of freedom. Freedom to have sex when they wanted and with whom they wanted. It accompanied a growth in individualism and undermining of uh, authority at all levels. I will do what I want to do, not what anybody tells me to do. At one level, the, the importance attached to the individual is a positive thing. After, God, after all, God made us as unique. He made us uh, and loves us as individuals. But what individualism meant was an erosion in the value of commitment at all levels and in all relationships. And the sad thing about the sexual revolution was that in seeking greater freedom, people lost something which was far more valuable. The joy and fulfillment and security of a committed, loving relationship. Not only has this had an effect on couples themselves with uh, a massive increase in divorces, with 23,000 people getting divorced in, to, in 1960 and 153,000 in 2003. It's also had an effect on children they might have had in that relationship. In 2010, it was estimated that around 3 million children have experienced the separation of their parents. In addition, since the legalization of abortion in 1967, there have been over 8 million abortions in this country. And a lot of that, although it's legally to prevent grave permanent injury to the physical and mental health of the pregnant woman, um, or where there's a risk that the child will be seriously handicapped, most of those are carried out because of the inconvenience of an unwanted pregnancy. The sexual revolution was meant to be about freedom. But sadly, as people have experienced for themselves, freedom without commitment is not true freedom. True freedom comes within a secure, loving relationship where you know your partner is not going to leave you as soon as you start to have problems in your relationship or when they meet somebody else they'd rather be with. Well, as we look here this morning at what commitment means between a couple in the Song of Songs, we'll also look at the freedom and joy that comes from experiencing the commitment of God to his people. But the first thing we see as we look at this passage in chapter 2, in verse 7, um, is that commitment means new life. Last week we looked at this verse, um, verse 7, which appears a few times in the, in the song. Um, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. He's saying that love should not be wrongly aroused, it should not be wrongly stimulated, unless it's in the right context, which is marriage. In the right place, it leads to a new joy and freedom. And that's the situation we see here in verse 8 onwards. We read of the man uh, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. He can't wait to see his bride again. He's described, his bride describes him as like a, a gazelle or a young stag. He's fast and he's strong. And when he arrives, he can't wait to get a glimpse of his bride. It says here he's gazing through the windows. He's peering through the lattice in verse 9. And twice he invites his bride to come with him. Arise, my darling, he says, my beautiful one, come with me. And in between those uh, two invitations, the imagery turns to that of springtime. 
Spring is considered a time of new life, isn't it? And we see that described well here. Have a look in verse 12. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. After winter, when all is dead, the earth is coming into life, the birds are singing, they're nesting. Commitment means new life. And new life is what we receive when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, we're told, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. To receive new life in Christ, we have to first put to death the old self, the sinful, self-centered, individualistic nature, and be born again. And for those who receive Jesus, who trust in him, Jesus says rivers of living water will flow from within them. To trust in Jesus requires a commitment. You can't be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. We looked at that last week, didn't we? You have to commit to following Jesus with all of your life. The reason we should want to do that is because Jesus is committed to you. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Commitment means new life. And secondly, commitment means openness and honesty. As we mentioned in the first uh, sermon in this series, a consequence of the fall when people rejected God was shame and mistrust. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed great intimacy. They had nothing to hide from each other. After the fall, we're told, they became aware of their nakedness and they had to cover themselves. Sin caused their relationship with God to be broken and it caused their relationship with each other to be broken. They started to blame each other. They no longer trusted each other. And when either party in a relationship doesn't, doesn't open up and share what they are thinking and feeling, it leads to, to mistrust. There may be many reasons why they may not want to open up. It may be because that's part of their temperament. They're reserved in their temperament. They find it hard to, to express their thoughts and feelings. They may be embarrassed. They may not want to, uh, to their partner to know what they are thinking. They may feel, may feel ashamed because they've done something wrong and are worried it will change the view that the other has of them. We said before that we were made for relationships, and we therefore have a, a natural interest in the relationships of, of others. And so when we watch the, the TV, when we read books, we go to the theatre, they're all about relationships, aren't they, at the end of the day? And most of them, to add to the suspense, um, having the plot line somewhere a secret, Something that's happened that the one party knows, but is not willing to let the other one know. And more often than not, the reason that they try and cover it up is because they're worried about the impact it will have on their relationship. The trouble is, if they, they don't, it will affect it anyway. And as a viewer, you've been let in on it, so you can see what's going on. And it's frustrating because you're thinking, just tell them, for goodness sake, just let them know. Stop digging yourself deeper. Well, the husband here has some wise words for his bride. Have a look at verse 14. My dove in the clefts of the rock, 
in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. He's saying, don't hide in the cleft of a rock. You've got nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be ashamed of. Come out, he's saying. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice. Talk to me. Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. We're so committed to one another, he's saying, that I won't stop loving you if you tell me what you are thinking. And I'm not talking here necessarily about big mistakes in a relationship. It's often the, the little frustrations or the wounds that begin to fester. Those are the things that can come between a couple. And the man here describes them as little foxes that ruin the vineyards. The vineyards are in bloom, he's saying. They're alive. Let's not let the little foxes ruin them. In our relationship with God, there's no point trying to hide anything because he knows everything anyway. But he still wants us to come to him and confess our sins. If we do so, he promises to forgive us our sins because he's a just God. He wants us to come to him and be open about our needs, not to try and shrug them off as if they don't matter or try and sort them out ourselves and our own strength. It's not, again, that he doesn't know our needs, but as we express them to him, we are expressing our dependence on him. Ask and you shall receive, he says. And that openness and honesty is essential for a church to flourish. If we have concerns, we need to to express them, to to talk about them. There's no place for grumbling and moaning behind the scenes. That's like uh, having little foxes which are ruining the vineyards, as it says here. Commitment means openness, and it means honesty. Thirdly, commitment means belonging. As we said earlier, the spirit of the times is individualism. I am my own person. I don't belong to anyone. No one is going to tell me what to do. In the same way there's a fear of being open and honest, there's a fear of belonging and commitment. The thing is, belonging is built into each of us. If we're made by God for relationships, then we are made to belong. The going our own way is going against what is best for us. And because of the way we're made, that need to belong will always come out from time to time, and we will see the beauty of it. In the aftermath this week of the terrible Manchester attack, people wanted to come together. Despite all the rivalry between the two great football teams in Manchester, which in the past has led to much violence, this week they came together in a clever wordplay, Manchester, a city united. The people who recognised that what united them, their, their sense of community and uh, human compassion, was more important than what divided them, their support for a football team. The Beauty of Belonging was brought out in a song a couple of years ago by the Lumineers, you may remember it, called Ho Hey. main refrain is, um, I belong with you, you belong with me, you're my sweetheart. I won't try and sing it to you, that might be a little bit... Um, Embarrassing, um, But that is the refrain which keeps coming through the song. And there was somebody who wrote a review of the song, somebody called Katie Patton, uh, not a Christian as far as I know. But this is what she said about the song. She said, The great equaliser 
is having that feeling of belonging to someone or something. Knowing that we belong to a unit bigger than ourselves that can answer our hope for love when we need it most. Help us make sense of the mess we sometimes make. All in all, our feeling of belonging is oftentimes our greatest source of joy. While doubling as the aspect of life that allows us to wade through the lesser times with a bit of grace. She's not a Christian, certainly those were Christian views that are coming through there. But we're looking this morning at another song that was written a couple of thousand years before that one. And here we read in verse 16, the girl saying, my, lo- my beloved is mine and I am his. It's a mutual belonging. Where belonging is not a good thing is when it's not mutual. When it's possessive, when it's a, a one-way belonging. When one party, more often the husband, feels his wife is his to treat how he wants. And that is where abuse starts. That is also where people have misunderstood the biblical concept of, uh, of, uh, of headship in a marriage. It's not that the husband has a right over his wife. It's that he has a responsibility towards her, to love her and protect her. It's a mutual belonging. And it's in that context of mutual belonging and security that a couple can enjoy sexual union. They can give of themselves to one another. Well, if we go to chapter 2-8, to the, the other verse we, we looked at, we see more of this language of belonging. Have a look at verse 6. The woman says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. A seal is a sign of ownership that can be seen by, by anyone. And the woman wants to know, wants people to know, that she belongs to her husband and no one else. Common symbol we use these days is a ring that all can see. And part of the marriage service involves that exchange of rings. So the prayer that is said beforehand in the service is this, Heavenly Father, by your blessing, let these rings be to the names of the couple a symbol of unending love and faithfulness to remind them of the vow and covenant which they have made this day through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when they give each other the ring, this is what they say, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body I honor you. All that I am I give to you. And all that I have I share with you within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the seal the bride mentions here in verse 6 was to be in two places, one on his heart, the center of his affections, and on his arm, the seal a symbol of his strength. And it means that in owning her, the husband will be committed to to loving her and protecting her. Well, the relationship we enjoy with God is also one of mutual belonging. In Exodus, before God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, this is what he says to them. He says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You belong to me, I belong to you. I will rescue you, I will protect you. It was a covenant or a a commitment that God was making with his people and his people were making with him, which sadly his people broke as they worshipped 
other gods. And the great thing about belonging to God is that there is nothing that he cannot do to protect us. So we don't need to be afraid. When Israel is about to enter the promised land, um, Joshua says to them, as we were singing earlier in that song, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. We don't need to fear anything because the Lord our God promises to be with us. Testament, um, as in the Old and New Testament, is another word for covenant. The Old Testament was based on, on the law or instructions that God gave his people. It was a temporary covenant that looked forward to the new covenant that will be sealed by the blood of Jesus. In the Last Supper, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in or sealed by my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. As Christians, the way in which God has confirmed to us the privilege of belonging to him is by the Holy Spirit. And so in 2 Corinthians, we're told he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And that great promise, what is to come, for those who belong to God, is an eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, if commitment is important to God, then he wants to see that in marriages. But he also wants to see it in, in all of the relationships that God's people have with one another. And that's why we have church membership. Yes, everyone is welcome to come and join us in our worship services. But ultimately, what God wants for us is not just to turn up when we, when we fancy it in an individualistic type of way, to maybe moan about things that aren't done the way we would like them to be done, but to express commitment to one another, to turn up when we don't want to turn up, because we know that just by being there will be an encouragement to those who are also there. Commitment means belonging. And finally, commitment means strength. Have a look at verse 6. In chapter 8, it carries on, for love is as strong as death. Death is irresistible. There is nothing we can do to stop it. One day, we will all die. True love is also irresistible, but in a positive way. Whereas human love is not perfect, the love of Christ is. And when we, we experience it, we are compelled to respond to it. We are drawn to it. Paul describes that in, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5. This is what he says. He says, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. If Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to die for us so that we can be spared the, the judgment that we deserve, then how can we possibly reject that love? How can we carry on living for ourselves, deciding what we think is right? That is to throw back the precious gift of love into the face of God. The strength of love it's also seen in its jealousy. It says here, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Jealousy is often used in a negative way, isn't it? We, we are jealous that somebody's got something we want. 
But in the context of something precious that you already have, that someone's trying to take away from you, it's right to feel jealous. If we don't, then there's something wrong in our love. God is described as a jealous God. If we belong to him, then we have everything we need for our perfect fulfillment. And yet the devil will try and lead us astray. The devil will try and make us follow him. And God knows that way leads to destruction. And so, of course, he's jealous for us. He wants the best for us. The great news is that God's love is so strong that once we belong to him, he will never let us go. His love, it says here, burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, or like the very flame of the Lord. God is the source of true love. And by crucifying Jesus, people tried to, to put out that flame of love. What they didn't realize, though, was actually the cross was the very demonstration of God's love. And it served to magnify God's love. Many waters, it says here in verse 7, cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. These waters may refer to the, the trials of this life, which may cause us to think that, does God really love me? But as God says in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And finally, in verse 7, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Love cannot be bought. That's what the devil tried to do with Jesus, isn't it? Remember the 40 days uh, he spent in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? And at the end of them, the, the devil took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you worship me, you can have all of this. And Jesus tells him where to go. Love cannot be bought. We were made for relationships. And those relationships are characterized by commitment. Some of you here will have celebrated your, your golden wedding anniversaries. Some even a diamond. Commitment is a beautiful thing where we find true freedom to share the ups and downs of this life and to seek the good of the other. God is utterly committed to his people and nothing can separate us from his love. Not even death. <clears throat> Finish with these words from Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect on what we've heard and to speak to the Lord about that, maybe to open up to him some of your struggles, some of the things you're thinking about, some of the issues you have, and to ask him to remind him, mind you, of his love for you and to fill you with that love. It's a moment of quiet.
Father, we do thank you for that commitment of your love that you have for us, that nothing can stop or prevent. Thank you for the privilege of belonging to you, that we are yours as you are our God. Thank you for that, all that that means to us, the, the sense of trust and security we have and, and the freedom that we have to enjoy in that relationship. Lord, we pray that we would enjoy that same freedom in our human relationships. We pray for commitment in our marriages. We pray that you would strengthen those that may be struggling at this time. We pray for commitment in our other relationships, our friendships, our, our relationships within the church, Lord. That again, you would strengthen those that are struggling. You'd make us committed to, to one another. And Lord, where we are struggling to know your love for us, Lord, fill us with that love. Help us see that, that, that your love is this immense, that is vast. It's like a mighty flame. Nothing can quench it. We praise you for that. And we praise you that you've demonstrated it in the death of Christ for us. In his name we pray. Amen.